0: Hello, everybody. Uh, It is, Jesus, what day is it? I legitimately don't even know what the date is. It is Wednesday, January 10th, 2018. And this is the Promotional Malpractice Live Chat here on MMAfighting.com. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. I'm the host of this podcast. My name is Luke Thomas. You probably know that already. Um, And we'll go for about 85 minutes today talking about the latest and greatest in mixed martial arts. Your questions, your comments, your gripes, bitches, smart ass remarks i will get to all of them in the comment section pardon me my beard is coming apart in mma fighting where this window is embedded that's where we're going to get to you can also send me tweets at l thomas news uh and then you can use the hashtag chat wrappers all that's explained in this post and then of course you can also shoot me an email luke thomas news at gmail.com um okay so a couple of announcements a bunch of you guys have been asking me hey What is the status of Ben Rothwell? I have been looking into it. Now, I don't have an update to give you uh, specifically other than to say I'm trying to get him to make some public comments. It's a little bit harder than I thought it would be because he doesn't really want to talk. So, uh, and that could be a perfectly good reason for that. He just doesn't feel like it. I'm not suggesting anything nefarious is happening. But uh, other than to say I have reached out, I have tried to pull out, Something from him, but I um, so far it's still a process. There hasn't been a definitive no yet. It's just it's ongoing. That's the one announcement. Second announcement that I think you guys might actually appreciate tomorrow, Comcast is coming to my house. I wanted to, to get them to come to my house today, but Comcast just can't be that easy to work with, as you well know, if you're an Xfinity customer. And currently we have the what 155 megabits per second upload and or download speed rather it's not great and that's why the signal sometimes looks like hot basura they're going to install a giga um uh, a gigabyte uh download speeds um and i think you'll know they obviously will significantly raise the um upload speeds as well point being is it's going to the the signal should be a little bit crisper by the time we do this next wednesday in addition i have purchased not one but two computers this is the first of which this is the new MacBook Pro uh 15-incher. This is the one that has the 3.1 gigahertz processor. It can go up to 4.1 on Turbo Boost. It's essentially the fastest you can get. I could not run today's chat on this because, as you can see, it only has USB-C ports on both sides. And I don't, you can see the USB-C ports. That's all it has. The other ones all have like HDMI ports or um all other kinds of stuff and it doesn't even have an sd card reader you have to put that into the USB C port so as soon as i get that adapter next week we'll have a better computer and we'll have a uh, better internet so i'm hoping that will dramatically improve this experience on your end of things and I'm also getting a PC tower, so then I can get vMix and run the chat through that. So there's a lot of changes coming down the, um, the pike. As I mentioned, I alluded to them in 2017. This is but the tip of the iceberg, but it should be a better viewing experience for you going forward. Yes? Okay. Thumbs up for that. Subscribe to the channel. Let's get this going. Enough with the pleasantries. Okay. Uh, interesting. First question. Oh, and by the way, I've got my coffee as well. Here. You can see that in the Ember Cup. Keeps it warm. Mm. Okay. Let's do this. White and McGregor's issues with Espinosa. Most delightful of weeks. I was somewhat confused last week to read The vitriolic reactions from Dana White and Conor McGregor to Stephen Espinosa's announcement that Mayweather McGregor's numbers and how it was the second ranked pay-per-view in history. Can you help me understand what was so bad about what Espinosa did for White and McGregor to go after him so hard, even implying that a publicly traded company like Showtime would lie to make pay-per-view numbers look worse? Now, somebody notes right below that, it's also green, so I'll also read that. I can't believe this is the lead question. Is anyone still bothered by this? I for one could not care about Mayweather McGregor or UFC Showtime anymore in relation to the event last summer. It was fun whilst the ride lasted, <clears throat> excuse me, whilst the ride lasted, but it's over and no intention of seeing anything on it ever again. Yeah, fair enough. So I'll keep this relatively brief. I mean, look. Um, no one was really wrong in either side sort of, it, it, which is to say the numbers in North America were um, what Showtime said they were. So by North American standards it was the second most. Although it was, um, you know, grossing, I think globally 600 million in terms of revenue, the event in general, uh, not really just from sales. And then, of course, the UFC and Connor and Dana were saying, well, yeah, but globally it has done much better than that. And I think both of those realities have to be acknowledged. And you're saying, well, what's the sort of what's the rule about why, why is North America some sort of special metric? Well, because historically and even today, pay per view is almost exclusively a North American phenomenon. Um, it is, uh, you know, when you think about pay per view, the the only two countries that really go all in on it as a form of entertainment year round, with you know, a sig- I mean, over. I mean, it's. I think it's well over eighty percent, ninety percent of the overall pay per view buying audience. Typically, um, it's just what us and Canada do. That's it. That I mean, uh, most other nations they might have pay per view events on occasion or some version of a pay to play kind of thing, but. Uh, it is it is basically a North American phenomenon. So when they bring those numbers up, it's not it's not necessarily crazy to emphasize how it did in that space. What made Mayweather McGregor I think a little bit different is one, it did better globally, and two, because of this sort of new era where people are able to get ac- they're able to access events much more easily sh- streaming, um, it, it it had a unusually wide global audience that was able to pay to watch it. So I think both realities need to be acknowledged and which one you care more about is obviously just a function of, you know, which side in this dumbass debate you want to be a part of. So in other words, like it wasn't wrong for them to say that, but perhaps it could have been more accurately explained why North America matters or, uh, you know, what the other global numbers were. Both of those things could have been put. Put out but the only thing that really gets me about dana white is i just don't get the vitriol like the level of animus relative to the perceived slight feels completely imbalanced and the other problem is that like according to steven espinosa that the ufc had access to this press release they knew it was coming out and what the exact wording was going to be according to what he said so if that, let's assume that's true for a second because again i know conor mcgregor doesn't like him but i've known steven espinosa for a long time not once has he ever lied to me not even close um if they knew that was coming i mean look here's the thing the ufc doesn't share pay-per-view numbers showtime on occasion does if you have made a choice to not share pay-per-view numbers then you have to accept the fact that if you have another partner who does they get to tell the story as they see it that's the deal you make like if you make an arrangement to say we're not going to release pay-per-view numbers. You get the benefit of knowing exactly what they are. You keep the public guessing. You're in total control of that information. But if you're not in control of it anymore because you have a partner who doesn't mind sharing it and you're not going to get out in front of it or at least try to counteract that, you know, more in a more immediate way, I really don't understand what the level I, I don't understand why they could possibly complain about this. Um, it seems relatively really straightforward. You choose not to speak about it. That has some benefits and that has some cons. You can't complain about the cons when they reveal themselves. That's a strategic decision you chose to accept. Um, so, you know, and again, the level of deception, could they have been more thorough in the in the press release? Probably. Um, but, it, it, you know, it's not really worth the raw. It just seems to me that they have a longer running dispute that this is simply the latest frontier or fault line in. Okay, uh, Big John McCarthy's new job and his legacy. All right. Um, let's see something here. Big John McCarthy's new job. Let me look up something here as we continue this. That, 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 that. All right. There's that. Right. Good enough. Uh Okay. big Big John McCarthy's new job in his legacy uh he semi retires from refereeing to become a color commentator for Bellator what does he bring to the table how well do you think he can transfer his obvious experience and knowledge into actual commentating and since a UFC legend semi retires can you share a few thoughts on Big John's Legacy yeah uh when I first heard that you know when I got the release in my inbox I was like that's an unusual choice that wasn't the direction I thought they would go in um but Everything sort of came together really late on this one. I had Big John on my show yesterday, and what he basically told me, and, of course, Mark Ramundi spoke to him on MMA fighting, and what he basically told me was that um, I think he didn't even get a call to audition until the news about Smith had come out. So, you know, that was what, like right after Christmas or something, right, in, right at the beginning of the new year? I mean, I, I can't remember exactly what date it was, but this was not long ago. So this all came together very quickly, very quickly um and i guess he auditioned and i guess they liked what they heard so here's the thing like if if you're in a job where being an effective or reasonably effective communicator is part of it you might translate better to the broadcast booth than others and yeah we know he does that we know he used to have his own podcast we know he's been a guest on radio shows and other podcasts everywhere before he is an effective communicator so i think that's one thing he brings that is important Uh, also you know you've got high-energy guys like Morrow and Chael, and to an extent, Goldberg, somebody who might be able to mellow them out a little bit. I think that might be a nice balance in that space, especially if it's a three-man booth. Um, but here's the reality. You know, I, I floated the idea a long time ago of, you know, hearing... So what was one of the cool things that UFC tried in the last couple of years? I, I don't think it worked, but it was a good idea, at least in theory. It was to get Mark Ratner's perspective about whatever, like the bout had come to some, there was an eye poke or there was a kick in the balls or it was the Musasi lifting the guy up and then, or lifting the up and then hitting with the knee. Like, what did the rules say here? What's referee protocol? And it turned out that like, even though Mark Ratner has been on a commission and certainly is knowledgeable about the rules, that's not a job he's best situated for. You need somebody who's actually been in the cage and dealt with things like this. So I thought, why not have a referee who's not working that night be on standby, and you can go to him and say, Okay, let's say it's Herb Dean or something. Hey, Herb, <clears throat> what's the protocol here? And then they can walk you through it. Because what ended up happening was they don't, no one really walks you through it because as good as Joe Rogan is, he can't possibly know everything. And ditto for Cruz or Stan or anybody else in that position. And you get a lot of misinformation. And then all the other referees go out on Monday on the various radio shows and podcasts around the MMA space and they sort of try to correct the record. Big John gets to cut all that off at the knees, presumably. Presumably, what he would be able to do is, in any kind of situation where there's an eye poke, groin kick, rules infraction, some kind of change, he'd be able to immediately step in and say things where um, he could bring all that perspective to bear. Here's exactly what the referee is, is probably going to do. Here's what the choice they they make, and this is the call as, um, as it should be made. Or, you know, these are the various options about how it could be made and, and whatever the referee does. That, that has basically never been a part of the MMA broadcast experience. You've had guys who, like Sean Wheelock, who have done some of that kind of thing while they were still the Bellator commentator, but not at this level, not at the level of a big John McCarthy. So that is, to me, actually really intriguing and could be a major benefit in terms of giving the audience the information it needs to under- better understand what's happening here and, to frankly, better understand um, officiating more generally. So actually, I think that might be really cool. Some of the other things he brings is, you know, he's had his own MMA school for a long time. He's a black belt in jujitsu. Um, obviously, you know, he still has that command school where he trains referees. And so he's still intimately involved, at least, you know, uh, um, you know, he brings not merely the act of being in the cage, but knowing what it's like to train referees and, and how they develop. Right, not really. You know what happens if someone gets kicked in the balls or something? Like, there's there's a whole range of, um, officiating understanding that he has. And then you add on top of that, this is a guy who brings historical continuity to the broadcast booth, right? Because sort of think of this, think of it this way: here's a guy who was involved in the UFC, at least in, insofar as MMA's North American roots are concerned. Because there's some, you know, um, Japan had its own sort of separate track. That the two eventually coincided, but at least insofar as North American MMA is concerned, Big John has more or less been there from the start, helped shape it, and is still around today. Um, so he understands the full arc of the sport. I think that's pretty Im- important, and at least, or at least, a good asset to have. So we'll see how he does. You know, let's hold judgment and see how it all sounds. But at least in theory, he offers something that no other fighter can really give, and I think that sets him. Pretty apart. Like they don't know the history of MMA. They weren't living it. They don't know what happens if, you know, uh, why referees are reluctant to take a point in a certain situation or what's supposed to happen. What is referee polling, you know, where one polls the other? What's the rules on instant replay in this state and why is it that way? And what are the, I mean, he gets, he does all that stuff. Um, And I think that could be an interesting twist. Love to see how it goes. My only concern is if he's a little too, a little too grandfatherly you know he a broadcast even if he needs to balance morrow everyone that broadcast should be high energy that's that's really what television is about big energy you know uh and it'll be a little bit weird if he's not so i guess we'll have to see how that goes follow up Will other referees follow and can they get back into refereeing after a job like that he told me he has a boxing event he's refereeing the very next night after bellator So he's still going to be doing some refereeing just in a different context. Um, I I guess not MMA. He'll just do boxing. And could he get back into it? I think it depends on how he carries himself during the course of the broadcasts. If he's out there being very opinionated, that might be good for television and maybe that's what he wants. That might uh, encumber his abilities to get back into the cage as a referee should that be a concern. However, if he calls it pretty down the middle and seems to be fair and whatever signs of bias are there, because everyone is biased, don't seem too problematic. Maybe he'll just shuffle right back in. But I I do think that even if other referees don't want to get into that job, hey, I want to stay a referee, I really think a broadcast can be enhanced by getting that guy to speak to the audience, getting that guy to answer Rogan's or Cruz's or Felder's questions um, for the UFC. That's really, really critical. It's a very separate skill set from knowing how to fight. Um, and they need an expert in that role to to really give the audience the proper amount of information, I think. Is John McCarthy the most expert authority on MMA? He's one of them. It says, it's an incredibly uh, daring move from Coker to let Smith go and pick up Big John to take his place with no commentating experience at all. He had some from the Affliction show, you'll recall. I, as well as most fans, I'm sure can't wait to see what he's like on the mic. So in that sense, it was a clever play, unless, of course, he sucks. Right. Uh, I don't think he'll suck. I think he'll be good at a bare minimum. question is how good and, and what will his strengths and weaknesses be. Someone says, speaking of this, Luke, do you think the people are overreacting about Bellator, about Bellator letting Jimmy Smith go? They have Cheel and Frank Mir. It's not like they have no one to cover for him. Jimmy was good, but he didn't bring much excitement with his style. Boy, I couldn't disagree more. I would take Anik over Jimmy Smith, and Anik's voice sounds almost ro- Robotronic at times. Well, they don't do the same job. I've explained this a gazillion times. I'm not going to do it again. You can look at, I think, last week's chat uh, where we went into this. Um, John Anik is a play-by-play commentator. Jimmy Smith is a color commentator. They are not the same. All right. In any case... Um, is it a big deal about letting Jimmy Smith go? We've kind of covered this one a little bit already, but I don't think I would add to this is that um, um, I actually do think it's a big deal. Seems like they financially lowballed him. I'm not really sure, <clears throat> sure why. I know he was on Ariel's show and kind of explained it a little bit, but it seems to be like another level of detail I'd like to hear from him. Um, so, one, why were they lowballing him? Are they trying to cut costs generally? That seems interesting. That's one. I think, too, um, maybe they felt like they just needed a change, but Jimmy Smith was, like, synonymous with the brand, I thought. You know, look, everybody is replaceable, including Jimmy Smith. Like, Bellator's got a great show coming up on the 20th with um, Lima and McDonald and then Chael and Rampage, and we'll see how all of that goes. But um, some people are very, you know, they're part of a company's identity, and when they leave – Uh, It's not that the job he did is so special that he's the only guy on earth that can do it. It's not that you can get a lot of guys who can do that job, although to varying degrees of success. The point being is what does it say about a brand and a company that lets a long tenured, I would say very well liked talented guy go for reasons of financial constraint? it just gives me a bit of an uneasy feeling. Uh, Maybe I'm overreacting. Could very well be. It's just a hunch, whatever a hunch is worth, which is maybe nothing. Um, But that seems weird. You know, and and for Smith to be very nonch, not nonchalant, but it doesn't seem overly stressed about leaving. Like, I don't know. Um, That guy was the, that guy was the flag bearer for Bellator before anybody else was who's in that company almost. And they're just, You know, going to let a guy like that go—that seems because you didn't want to pay him what he's, you know, what he says he's worth, and he was taking your checks nine years prior to that. You know what I mean? Like uh, there, uh, there's a there's there's missing information here, which prevents me from being overly declarative here. But it gives there's more to the story, and it doesn't say good things about Bellator's. I think (laughs) kind of want to be restrained here, but I wonder if there are financial implications not merely about what they want to pay Smith, but more generally. That's sort of my wonder. Um, okay, I want to jump to the middle. I actually looked at the questions for a brief moment prior here. Oh, you know what? I can, I'll skip a couple of these. I'm going to come back. I'll come back to some of these. Here's one that I thought was really, really interesting and needs some further discussion. All right, Stipe feels disrespected by the UFC. Is this his own fault or is he right? Heavyweight champ Miocic was vocal about how he feels disrespected that the UFC wants the more marketable Nganu to beat him. During their recent press conferences, Stipe was just like, whatever, and just responded. If he says so, when Nganu tried to bring up the heat by saying that Stipe was intimidated, what are your thoughts? Does Stipe need to put in a little effort on the marketing side, or should the UFC just work with Stipe the way he is comfortable with? Okay, and someone says... This, this comment is also green stipe is never going to be marketed on the way the UFC wants and it's a total shame he's a firefighter and a great sense of humor and a family man. these should all be pluses but for some reason they're not okay um, I think he is right and he's wrong. I think he does have a bit of a point in two different ways but I don't think he's connecting the dots enough I think in this and, and a lot of people are like this so it's not something um, specific to him. in other words, What are the two ways that I think he's right? Number one, he had also said he kind of feels like the UFC might want Nganu to win. Now, I don't know that to be a fact, but I don't think that's a bad hunch. You can just detect there's a lot of enthusiasm and energy about Nganu, not merely from the fan base, but from Dana White himself. And it seems like the company is really getting behind, pushing him. If not as the future conqueror of this division, certainly as somebody worth paying attention to, maybe now and in the future. They have really gone after him in a way that maybe Stipe says, I've not gotten that treatment. Yes, I've been the champion, and yes, I've been in good fights, and they've more or less rectified my contract, which he also notes. But I don't get that kind of just natural enthusiasm. I think he's right about that. I've detected the same. I don't, I don't think he's wrong. There's something to be said for that. He's right in another way, and then the way this commenter brings up, specifically that, um, look, there are ways that Stipe can be marketed that can maximize who he is. Um, Putting the fights in Cleveland, which I know they did once, but doing that again I think could be a really big deal. You can go to that well a number of times, and the fact that they don't do more of that or really pull out those roots from him. You know, when you have those... uh, shared identities a guy doesn't have to say as much he can just be that guy and people will naturally gravitate to him and so you know i know ariel has been a big proponent of this and he's right as well like you got to put these guys where they're from in a more direct way and again they did it once but you can you can make a claim i think if you're steepy or anybody else observing that there's probably more that could be done to promote him the right way so i think on those two counts he does have a point the problem is for me ultimately i don't think like as i mentioned before he's really connecting the dots and by that i mean look man you got to make some choices in this life doesn't matter your line of work you got to make some choices you have to figure out who you are what your values are what your goals are and you have to pursue them in the best way that you can but when you make certain choices about what is important to you you're n- you're naturally making a choices that uh, certain things aren't as important and that's okay. There's no, you, you don't want to be somebody you're not. You don't want to pursue dreams that you don't care about. You don't want to live in a way that is antithetical to your values or, or your aspirations. But every choice you make is going to have some upside and it's going to have some downside. And the upside for Stipe is that he gets to be who he is. He's still a firefighter. He's you know deeply embedded in that Cleveland community. He's a very salt of the earth kind of person. Um, and he wants to be a champion and a fighter in that way and not much more. He has explicitly, explicitly told me on my show, explicitly, like in these words, I don't care about celebrity at all. I asked him, I know you want big money, but do you really care about celebrity? Not even a little bit. Well, well okay, man. I mean, you, you don't have to. Like, There's no right or wrong about how you want to live your life. You've got to live it the way that that makes the most sense to you. And if not chasing that celebrity and not really fulfilling that UFC heavyweight champion, public facing role. If that's something you don't think you'd be good at or something you don't want to do or some combination of the two, you don't have to, it's not wrong to not do that, but for every choice, there's a pro and there's a con. The pro here is you get to live the life that you want to. You get to speak to your strengths and you get to avoid your weaknesses. The con is that why wouldn't the UFC be more interested in Nganu his I don't know that he is, you know, celebrity hungry necessarily, but pretty clearly they like marketing him and pretty clearly he likes being marketed. He doesn't shy away from hardly any of it. And he's out there doing it in a second language. If you've made a choice as a champion where you're not going to do a lot of media and when you do it, it's not going to be that great. And that's just not a big priority for you. Fine. I have no argument with that, but you then can't turn around and say, well, they are more excited about this guy. Yeah. Yeah, of course they are. He services their interests and their needs way better. It would be shocking if they weren't. So the the thing I would say is if you have if you have this vision for yourself and that's the way you want to live it, the reward is that you get to live it. You don't get to you don't get to say I want to live this way and then there should be no downsides to it. That's the choice you made, man. You made a choice to say this is what's important. That's not, but that's not part somebody else it could be a priority for them and that more naturally dovetails with the company it would be foolish if they weren't more excited about him and so in some ways anyway so i think he's got a point that there, you know it, it can't feel good to be the champion and look around and see this natural enthusiasm for a contender and to be and to and to detect that that can't feel good and it can't feel good that you know yeah man there's probably a better way to market this guy than the way they were doing they've done a little bit of it but you know have they really gone and stepped on the gas pedal in that way no but you made a choice You made a choice that these were not your strengths or that these are not your interests. And there's a downside to that. You have to accept the downside. Uh, In my line of work, if you want to be somebody, and this is a little tip for everybody out there who wants to get into MMA media, if you want to be in MMA media and you want to be somebody who's got an opinion, uh, I got news for you. Sometimes fighters aren't going to like it. You have to be willing to accept that reality. Now, of course, if you've done something over the line, you have to address that as well. But if it's in the if you've given opinion in the normal course of um your job, in the normal course of editorial conduct, and a manager gets mad at you or a fighter gets mad at you or they don't want to answer your question, I'm not saying you have to necessarily love all of that, but you kind of made a choice. People have a right to speak back to you. This is what I mean when I say fighters don't owe us anything. Yes, I'm going to speak my mind, but I recognize as a Cost of doing that, it's probably going to piss some people off. I'm just okay with that. You have to ask yourself if you want to get into this line of work or any line of work where commentary is involved, are you willing to accept the fact you're probably going to piss some people off that you don't want to or that would surprise you or it could be powerful? You have to make that choice. And you can't complain about it down the line uh, unless they like grossly overreact, right? There's a limits to sort of everything, but Fundamentally, it's like I'm. I've accepted that, and I think Stipe needs to accept. If you're not going to fulfill those responsibilities in the way that somebody else could, and they're more excited about that, I, I don't. I don't know what to say. That's the deal you made. Uh, okay. UFC ceremonial weigh-ins. Someone says, "Thank you for all the content uploaded." I, of course, have given a thumbs up and subscribed to the channel. It's very good. Subscribe to MMA Fighting. It's a very good channel. The question might be a coming. What? The question might be coming a bit from left field, but what's the point with the ceremonial weigh-ins these days from the UFC's perspective? Is it in the hope of getting some fireworks going at the face-offs? And as a follow-up, can you see the official morning weigh-ins becoming an event like the ceremonial ones used to be? Greetings from Geneva, Switzerland. A buddy of mine is moving to Switzerland. He is moving to Basel. I've heard good things. Um, Okay. Oh, and then someone asked about Ben Rothwell down the line, so I've answered that one. Uh but okay with this one uh, a couple of things I think it largely services the media right because if i get a picture of dehydrated i don't know pick somebody Darren till on the scale uh that's not nothing that's valuable but it's much better to get a face off um where they're de- they're rehydrated and they're in you know they're not worried about making weight they're in a better mood probably at that point and they probably look physically better it's it's a great way to get some footage it's a great way to get some um, photographs, right? So this is better for all the various media outlets in there who need to write articles and and disseminate their stories. And it's probably good for the fans as well, right? So you know you get to see Connor face off, or if you're not going to the fights, you can still go see Connor at the weigh-ins and it's free. Pretty, you know, it's that kind of a thing. So I think uh, those are its major functions at this point, just to service the media and the fans because the UFC, you know, they don't need to do it. They need to do the original one, the early morning one. They don't need to do the other one. So there you go. That's all. All right, uh, so I asked about Ben Rothwell. I gave an update to that at the very beginning of the chat. Uh, Volkan is training with Rockhold ahead of the DC title fight. Um, what do you make of it? Is it of any significance? Is Rockhold giving intel to Volkan or DC? Uh, it would have to, without speaking out of turn, it would really depend on the nature of uh, how they're training together. Um, and i don't know i don't know what the answer to that is right maybe they're training a little bit maybe he they're training in just a certain kind of context maybe it's sort of like you know general training not um game plan specific training or maybe they're not maybe he's like yeah i can't i can't train with this one without without really getting into the details of how they're training together i think opining about it as some sort of betrayal it seems a little bit premature it could be i mean i don't know but There's a lot of ways to train with somebody that isn't that's helpful, right? But not in a specific way tailored to be a friend. All right, there was one down here that oh, here we go, and I'll go back to some of these other ones. But this one I really wanted to get to. I saw this one earlier, and it really, um, although in some ways I might disappoint you, but. Someone says, Hi Luke, have you watched Joe Rogan's podcast with Jeff Novitsky? I thought it was very insightful and countered some of the criticisms you have noted about the testing program over time. Moreover, it gave an update, uh, gave an up to date, excuse me, report on the John Jones situation. Well, let me say I've only seen uh bits and pieces of it. Joe Rogan's podcast, they're they're great, but they're three hours. I gotta be honest with you, I don't have three hours to just give up to a podcast. Uh, not any day. So I can only catch snippets um as a consequence. But I would say a few things. Um, I did see what he said about John Jones. Let's start there and work backwards. I found that very bizarre, very bizarre. Previously, he had said something that was, he, he argued, interpreted irresponsibly as some kind of tacit, if not an endorsement, but explanation that, um, that um, was taken out of context by the media, reported incorrectly, or given a salacious headline. And then he goes out and does the same thing a second time i don't i don't really quite understand what he meant there now he it was somewhat overblown because what he said was you know um this seems to not indicate use but he doesn't really know however he said he didn't really know after like five minutes of saying it didn't really indicate um intentional use and i I don't know if i've talked about on this live chat but i made the point before you actually don't know that it doesn't indicate uh intentional use it could also indicate um really shoddy use uh, it could indicate somebody who's just really bad uh, at hiding drug use or reckless or some, There, there's there's a number of explanations about how that kind of thing could happen. One of them is that it was not intentional. He could have, have something spiked or God only knows how it got into a system. That is one, sure. That's a plausible explanation. Another plausible one is this dude's just bad at, at concealing PED use, and, and this is a, a natural revelation of it. That is also another explanation. I don't know what the answer is. I don't have a strong opinion on this Tyrannobal thing, in part because I'm waiting. We don't have very much information with which to make any kind of informed choice. Um, we haven't heard John's side really in any kind of detailed way. We have not heard what, um, you know, any kind of USADA arbitration panel or what they have to say either. And so we're sitting here in this space where we're we're given a very limited amount of information and asked to speculate. This is my point. I'm telling you, I don't know what the answer is, but I can think of a charitable way that this uh, makes John look. A charitable way would be, wow, you're right. It doesn't indicate use. That is very possible. But it is equally possible that another explanation, whether it's true or it's false, we'll find out in time, is that, of course, he was using, and this is just a, uh, uh, he's just bad at it in terms of concealing it that my my only issue was why are you going out and taking the position that is naturally charitable if you got mad at someone previously for reporting that or saying as much and that what you were trying to say was no i'm just calling it down the neutral it could be that case if all you're saying is it could be but it could be but it could be fine but if you're saying it could be for five minutes and then well you don't really know it's it's how do you know that that's the case unless you have more information and i guess we'll have to you know, see what it does in the end. I, I'm going to wait because, again, I just don't have a lot of information to make it. I think my only point was, I don't know how you can possibly declare that it wouldn't indicate intentional use. It doesn't indicate that necessarily at all. Um, and that's my problem. Now, insofar as the other things he said, I'll try and make time for it. I don't, I can't imagine I'm going to hear anything on there that's going to be particularly life-changing for me. But I want to make a point here. Um, there is a scholar an academic, a Scottish gentleman named, I, I might be pronouncing his name wrong if you are Scottish, and I'm not getting this right, please by all means forgive me, but it's pronounced or it's spelled DeMio. Paul DeMio is a professor at the University of Stirling in Scotland. Um, he is a very uh, interesting and celebrated academic. He does not necessarily share my viewpoints about anti-doping in the same um scope or intensity, but I encourage you to look up him him up. He has done a lot of work on the history of anti-doping. He's done a lot of work on the harms of anti-doping. And what he believes is that uh, anti-doping plays an important role in sports. I think there we part ways a little bit, but that the current way in which it's implemented is so full of problems that some major reforms are in order. So he's like you in the sense that, they probably don't want these kinds of drugs involved in sport. The question is how you go about regulating it in the, in the place we've done. And one of the major points that he's made that doesn't get made often enough is who is the guy intellectually who is making the arguments and going on the Joe Rogan experience and every other place who is arguing um, about the problems of anti-doping? Because there are many of them. Here's my point. There is a direct correlation between power and the representation of ideas, right? So you have all of these people who believe in anti-doping and they hold conferences and they go on the Joe Rogan experience and they tweet and they get together and they, I mean, they're out in the public and they're open and they're everywhere for a lot of reasons. You don't see this on the doping side, so to speak, because one uh, many of these drugs are illegal um, the way in which they're shared or disseminated is illegal. Um, there is obviously some ethical dilemmas about how it can be used. There are, is a incredible social stigma about it. I mean, you can't float the idea that there might be some kind of medicinal middle ground without someone, uh, you know, willfully accusing you of being on steroids or something. My point being is it's not you might say well okay well there's no yeah i mean who's out there pleading the case for pedophilia yeah pedophilia uh, um, um, uh, pedophiles right who are you know incredibly disturbed people i'm not here being a jonathan swift modest proposal guy um, there are legitimate academics uh, who are making arguments that there are some real problems with anti-doping that need to be acknowledged uh the privacy invasions the whether the question about whether it's effective you're getting only 2% adverse analytical findings in a year i mean this is supposed to be some kind of major deterrent this is supposed to be some kind of uh effective program maybe it is maybe it isn't you know and and i, I i've heard nevitsky say well year over year we have less adverse analytical findings what on earth is that supposed to mean you've got data you're just pasting on top of it some kind of narrative the point being is the power and the representation here are are aligned, and somebody needs to get out there and more forcefully make this case. And Paul Demio is one of those guys. And you look at him, and he's not—he's a, a you know a typical academic. He doesn't. If he's on steroids, he's on a very bad version of them. Uh, who needs to be able to make these things more public because there is an argument for it. Um, there is at least an argument for anti-doping restraint, if not for outright doping. Uh, There are all kinds of problems with it. Does it work? Is it effective? Is the sport better with it or without it? And then each of these claims, when you begin to break them down, um, you know, sports can't survive if doping continues. I don't, that seems manifestly totally false. Um, If sport is beleaguered by controversy with dopers, that seems totally false. Totally false. Yes, there might be some people in the public eye who say it's, um, uh, you know, it makes the sport look bad, but I don't think there's really any evidence that that has led to any decline in attendance or interest for any sport that has had that problem. I mean, cycling had some issues, um, but whatever popularity surge they got from Armstrong, I don't know that from a participatory standpoint, they've had wild swings in it. And it's gotten a bit of a bad look, I think at times, but you know, look at FIFA is outright dodging uh any kind of um any kind of uh um oversight and god bless them because <laughs> it's making the game a lot better but even with cycling I mean, cycling got all this attention because of doping and it has survived in spite of doping um and even if you're still in favor of doping the question about you know to what extent can you do this to independent contractors to what extent is this this invasion of privacy even worth it. I mean, these are all very, 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 very fundamental questions. And this is especially true if you believe in anti-doping to the extent that Navitsky does, where he's rummaging through people's garbage. If you really believe in this kind of thing, it has to hold up to scrutiny, to challenge. And I really, really encourage you. In fact, Paul DeMio has a piece out, it just got published I'm not sure, in the um in the Journal of Drug Policy on the connection between anti-doping as it relates to now amateurs and its connectivity to the war on drugs. I'm sorry. These two are not divorced. They are very much connected. They are very, very much connected. In fact, Paul DeMio has a about an hour and a half long lecture on YouTube. Just type in Paul Demio uh, doping or anti-doping, and he's got a two-part lecture. The technology of it is not great. I don't know who shot it. It looks like somebody who has a camera, and they're living in a van down by the river. But... At least familiarize yourself with this man's good faith arguments. At least come to grips with the fact that anti-doping, if even if you are in favor of it, is terribly, terribly problematic in a number of ways that you just can't ignore because you say, well, drugs and sport are bad. Fundamentally, I don't believe that. But even if you do, whatever mechanism you want to employ and, and force on us, it has to hold up to rational scrutiny. And there are so many points Of rational scrutiny where i think anti-doping dramatically fails and maybe you disagree with that at least familiarize yourself with some of the arguments Um, the notion that scandal is bad for it or that it can really be said to be effective and that we don't have really any information about who is using before or now but gee we're just going to go ahead and plant a flag and declare victory because we have less adverse analytical findings this is this seems totally imprecise this is a lot of sleight of hand and it's a lot of moralistic nonsense because people in power are representing these ideas and they're presenting them to you as the good guy argument. I'm not the bad guy. And the people who present uh, the notion that anti-doping may not be nearly as great as you think it is, they're not the bad guys. It just, it sounds that way because people in power have made it seem that way. They don't allow, or at least they historically not really allowed for any kind of intellectual challenge. Well, I think those days are beginning to change. And Paul Demio over in Scotland is I think one of the guys and uh, there's another guy, he's, uh, I forget where he's from, uh, Julian Sovescu, I think. I always get his name mispronounced. He outright believe he's actually more stringent than I am. I mean, he really believes in outright doping. Um, straight up, like, as a good thing, which I don't know if I'm in favor of that necessarily. But you get the idea. Like, th- these ideas are becoming greater and greater and greater as we keep going further down the rabbit hole of anti-doping. And getting some results, I suppose, but we don't really know because we can't measure them because... No one really wants to ask the hard questions. Okay, like I said before, I'll make that choice. Doesn't bother me at all. And yes, I'll make time for Jeff Nowitzki's thing. I'm, I'm sure he's a well-intentioned guy. It's just a completely different worldview. I don't. I don't share that at all. And I don't think that these ideas, when you really begin to consider how strenuously people, you know, stress them to you, um, I, I think there's a lot of problems, and I think there's a lot of changes that need to get made. All right. In fact, the first known case where people don't realize this, a lot of what comes from doping is sort of like a reefer madness. Well, you know, remember, you remember reefer madness back in sort of like what post-World War II, right? Where people thought marijuana could make you crazy and it could, you know, all of this was sort of, you know, uh, racial dog whistles because uh, A, people didn't understand the drug and B, if this was a drug of choice by any, uh, you know, minority community, it was all of a sudden terrible, Uh but in any case, people have essentially long overcome reefer madness. Our current attorney general, notwithstanding, um, the first case of doping is uh, uh, is like that. It was in 1886. It was a biker, and it was believed that he uh, had died from effects of doping. Um, in particular, at the time, I think people were taking strychnine. Now you could say it's a poison, but if taken in certain doses, it was believed and can. Have some kind of uh, performance-enhancing effect. I mean, people I wouldn't—I wouldn't recommend it now, but you know, it does. It, it can't, uh, in a very medieval way, it can work. Right? Here's the here's the problem with that. Some people said he died in 1886 in the course of this, um, in the course of this race. Well, Paul Demio dug into it, and it turned out that. There was no evidence that was true, and then there were scholarly articles written about the history of anti-doping in favor of anti-doping, which had cited that. And as they as evidence in the citation of the paper, he went and found those resources, and they just repeated it without any real citation themselves. So it's based on this total fantasy about what had happened. Turned out the guy died 10 years later in 1896 from complications of typhoid. Had nothing to do with that race, had nothing to do with any of that, that is the root that, that one, uh, bicyclist, that is the root of anti-doping. It is a literal story about fake news. That is the, that is where anti-doping grew out of. This guy was believed to have taken this, uh, strict nine on a biking course and died as a course of consequence of complications. Um, and it's just not even true. It's not even true. Died 10 years later. And it was only Paul Demio finding that out and reporting on it that, uh, uh change people's opinions or at least you know made a strong argument. I mean the 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 root of anti-doping is fake news. So forgive me if I've got some questions about it. Okay. Uh System of a Down. Luke is a man with Armenian heritage. Yes I do. Who has professed some affinity for metal in the past. What are your thoughts on Armenian American metal band system of a down? Uh you know what I don't really care all that much for their music to be honest. However, I went to a Deftones concert at the Verizon Center here in D.C. And uh, I I went because I was like, oh, you know, a System of a Down, I've got nothing against them. But, uh, hey, Deftones I love. And the Deftones were not very good, to be honest. I don't know if they just had an off night or they're just not great live musicians. I don't know what the problem was. They were not, it was not very good. But System of a Down, I mean, they blew the doors off of that place. So I can say this, for a live act, if you're sort of wishy-washy on them, I can highly, highly recommend them. I'm more of a uh, dying fetus, cannibal corpse um, <laughs> kind of metal guy. In fact, I've got on repeat, uh, Thy Art is Murder. I've got Thy Art is Murder's um, Puppet Master and then Dying is uh, in the Trenches. Dying is in the Trenches is like, I mean, it's a masterpiece of metal and brutality do fans have to be careful what they wish for when they complain about fighter pay on james vick's recent interview on mma junkie radio he said he had a conversation with sean shelby about booking fights and why sean can't get kevin lee and others to fight him sean told him the ufc used to use tactics to get fighters to take fights by saying things like if you don't take this fight against vic we have to keep you on the shelf for a few more months fighters needed the money sooner and had to take the fight now with fighters making more money especially the ranked fighters Who we want to see compete they have the ability to wait months on end for an ideal matchup to become available with money in the bank and money on the line the smart thing to do is to avoid risk and maximize future earnings and rank however the downside to that is inactivity and it's starting to show in the 155 pound division is no one is booked for a fight and everyone seems to be risk avoidant i think risk averse is the word you're looking for vic versus lee would be a fight any fan would want to see but it makes no sense for lee to take that fight especially coming off of his biggest payday. Is there a way to pay fighters more and also have them take more risk to put on fights we want to see? Right. Um, This is the point I've made, I think, a number of times, however um, inarticulately or however incomplete. Um, I believe that the best system we could potentially come up with is what basically the NFL has, which I know is a very, very different arrangement and not replicable for what we need but just consider what the benefits of their system is one those guys have incredible um protections maybe not as good as the nba but they've got relative to fighters anyway incredible protections uh, baked in and enforceable by their cba right so certain amount of pay guaranteed in certain situations certain amount of recourse for any number of disputes with a team or the league itself i mean all this is sort of written out and it and it, and it gives them um some security however When the schedule comes out at the beginning of the season, hey, you're going to play this team on this day in this city, and that's just what it's going to be. There's no, like, can you imagine, like, the Raiders, like, yeah, we don't want to play Kansas City in week 13. We're going to say we just can't do it, and we have a, you know, our offensive line is too banged up, so we're going to decline that, and then you're going to take the Dolphins, you know, instead or something, right? Imagine that, right? That's sort of what we have to deal with now. I know that fighters don't want to hear this, and I'm not doing this because I, I hate them or something. I, I have an extraordinary amount of, I mean, part of what fuels anybody in media's desire to do this is um, the enormous amount of respect we have for the athletes. But if you're asking me what the best system is, I don't think it's to underpay them. Don't, that seems like a very much not a long-term solution. And I don't know that it's exactly true that because they have so much money, they don't want to fight. I mean, at some point, I, I guess that becomes true. But you know, going from 50000 a fight to 400000 a fight, does that really want to make you fight less? I, I have a hard time believing that. I think the issue is that we give them so much control over their own matchmaking at this point. They don't have to take fights because they're not employees. You can't tell them what fights to take. And that is where the complicating factor comes in. The fact that they have money allows them to wield even more control through that matchmaking process. So to me, it's like, If you, it's not just because you're paying them more. You're paying them just enough to exploit matchmaking power failures, essentially. Oh, you can't make me do this. I've got money to burn. Okay, let's burn some. Uh, But really what it centers on is that debate about who should be in control of matchmaking. And I, I, this is why I don't like it when fighters say, I want this guy or I want that guy. I like it when fighters, I mean... You know, it's not great for the career sometimes, but, you know, I spoke to Jeremy Stevens this week and I was like, why did you accept the fight with Duho Choi? Like, or no, I said, um, I asked him, uh, when you got the call to face Duho Choi, uh, I can understand why you would say yes, but I would want to hear it from you. Like, what about that fight appeals to you? And his argument was, and this is a little bit, you know, um, uh feels like a a bit bit of an og way to describe it but his answer was i didn't know you could and he was being facetious but he goes i didn't know you could turn down fights so in the era i come from you got the call you just said yes and i understand why certain fighters don't want to do that but the more you can get to that space the better it is for you and for me and i'm just going to speak to that reality i i i would like to see a system where they are financially compensated to the to the max but that the matchmaking control is separated from that if if at all possible uh, next for Usman. Hey, Luke, just to play matchmaker, what does UFC do with Usman? Should he defeat Mech? Decision or finish, it's still an unranked opponent. Will he finally crack the top 10? What would just see next for Usman? Let's look at that, shall we? Let's look at that. All right. He is a welterweight fighter. Currently, you have Kamaru Usman at 10, and you're right. Below him would be Cerrone, uh, who's got a fight coming up, Condit, Nelson, Kim, And then Medeiros above him would be Ponzinibbio, Magny, uh, Till. I I don't know. I could do uh, Kamar Usman versus Neil Magny if he'd be up for that. Um, I I still think the fight to make is Kamar Usman versus Darren Till. You know, I know the argument. Oh, this you're killing off one contender. They're not killing off any contender. Whoever loses here is going to rebound. They're both that good. And Kamar Usman might be the next big thing in that division. He just needs a chance to prove it. I don't know that to be sure, but. You know, I, I just don't know how you can look at him and, and look at the way he fights and say anything other than he is a highly intriguing blue chip prospect at this point. I mean, he's not prospecting a more contender, but you know, he, there's a future there that needs to be actualized. And this is my point. You know, these guys like, I mean, how many fighters need to complain they can't get a fight before you realize that system has some reformations that are in order? Maybe it's not all the way removing control, but if there is some kind of mechanism that we could establish to get that going, I, I think it'd be highly valuable, but yeah, maybe somewhere in there, somewhere else. I mean, Soroni's got one condit. I don't know, Gunnar Nelson. You know, uh, I could see that that'd be a good one too because Usman likes to go to the ground a lot. Uh, it'd be a challenge for him on the feet, so Gunnar Nelson would be a good choice as well. So, a lot of different ways um, you could go. I think that'd be a lot of fun, and I really hope we get to see him because there's a lot of there's a lot of good fights that can get made that we have to have the you know the boldness to declare we need swanson Choi war, an unpopular question. It is my firm belief that the Swanson-Choy fight took a toll on both fighters. I mean, there's no doubt. There's no doubt. Specifically, I'm talking about considerable brain damage, which has and will reflect its effects down the line. Swanson hasn't looked as sharp after the fight, and I suspect Choi won't either. Would it be fair to give extra compensation to fighters who have a particularly damaging fight in light of loss of future revenue due to injuries that occurred during the fight? I think what we need is... Rather than w- overly worrying about you know Tim Kennedy showering in front of anti-doping authorities, the real future, in my judgment, is going to be on assessing brain damage in living athletes. Because if you can do that, and then you can firmly say, here is a line where if you go past this line, whatever that may be, uh, in terms of accrued brain damage, then you're no longer eligible to compete. I think that is what we need. And then if you're going to do that, what you need to do is have some kind of fund For people who then lose their livelihood in the event of that, because they gave it all away, so to speak, for entertainment in the course of what the company asked them to do. This is what I mean. Take away some of that matchmaking control, but pay them a lot per fight, set up some kind of, I hate to say this word, but safety net for them, some kind of insurance or retirement program, something, some kind of way to fill them in on that and I think that would be much more in line with the interests of uh, what the athletes actually need, right? Um, than, you know, having somebody watch them shower, which they do, apparently. Amazing. Not only do they watch them shower, people defend that. That's crazy. All right. John Jones and Nick Diaz, Jeff Davitsky comments. Uh, if this is a repeat, I will avoid it. UFC's anti doping spokesperson, Novitsky, recently had some comments on the two big stars in the UFC, John Jones and Nick Diaz. He downplayed the Jones case, hinted it was unintentional, and said John Jones shouldn't be punished severely. He also said that he was both optimistic, or he was also optimistic about Nick Diaz resolving his sanctioning issues. Novitsky is obviously paid by the UFC, but do you see any conflict of interest with his roles at the UFC? Um, I don't know that it's appropriate to speculate in the way that he has, but we've already been over that. Both the face of anti doping, but also looking after UFC's interests. Well, the UFC's, you could argue that the UFC's interest is anti-doping insofar as, uh, yeah, you could argue that's one of their interests. Um, and again, I've made this point, and I don't know if people want to hear it, but it, I think it's true. I don't think the UFC really cares about anti-doping, and I don't blame them. I think what they care about is protecting themselves in the event of a catastrophic injury or death um, from um, any kind of legal liability or any kind of... Uh, uh, what you call it, um, public perception issue. I think that's really what it all comes down to. And I, and that's probably a smart play. And if that's the play, then I get it. But, you know, I, I think really worrying about some of the other stuff that just, you know, it's for the public to say, Oh yeah, we care about all this stuff, but you know, that they don't really care. And I don't blame them. Michael Johnson. Has taken over 220 significant strikes in just his last two fights. No question there. But what do you think of that? Do you think a change of weight class is the solution to his struggles? Well, he's also been fighting some guys who are just absolute murderers and um, produce a extremely high degree of frequency of output. So somewhat of a weird issue. Do you think a change of weight class is the solution to his struggles? I guess we'll have to see. I guess we'll have to see. How does he look at featherweight? Um whatever advantages he thinks are conferred from going down there do they materialize i am willing to hold judgment excuse me withhold judgment until we get a clear glimpse of how he performs down there again some of these guys think oh i'll just go down 10 pounds and all my troubles will be you know will go away and then you're like no that's not how it works but then other guys are like no i think i can be like realistically way more competitive down there and for a variety of reasons and we'll have to just see Someone says, what is your favorite Black Mirror episode Uh, of all time? It's probably the one about the pig. I'll just leave it at that. You know exactly which one I'm talking about. Uh, But from this season, it's got to be Metalhead. Metalhead was because the problem with the current season of Black Mirror is that they've gone a little bit soft. Uh, Black Mirror, when you watched it, would terrify you. And the good guy, such that there was a good guy. Didn't get the girl in the end, and I'm speaking in a sort of proverbial way here, but you know what I mean? Like the hero swoops in and solves the crime and gets the girl and gets the job. That's not how Black Mirror works, it's the opposite. It's a hellscape where you know the various ways in which technology can just absolutely um, ruin you and affect your modern life. Um, okay, so, um, so Metalhead is of the current season the kind of episode that goes back to that. Uh, and that's why I thought it was really, really good. Um, but generally, you know, that one about the, 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 what was it? The USS something, the star Trek, uh, not spoof exactly. Cause that's not what it is, but the play on star Trek is, you know, no. And they really are sort of going back to the same themes too, in terms of the technology before the technology had a, uh, a way in which it was very very different what the word technology meant you know um it could mean robotics it could mean the one remember the one episode where the guy had like the, everyone has like the like the contact lenses that serve as like a dvr for their life and you can go back and review everything uh and then in the one about the pig it was almost none of that other than it was sort of like it was like epic trolling in a way uh, it was just a wide variety of uses. Now it's all kind of the same function and the same, just, you know, oh, here we took we took someone's consciousness and we made a digital copy of it. Um, you know, it, it, that, it gets a little stale, but Metalhead on the current season, uh, that will give you some nightmares. Let's see. Do doot, 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 doot. All right, three-weight world champions. With Frankie Edgar versus Max rebooked, do you think he's the only guy who could conceivably win titles in three different weight classes? He's got to get through Max and, if so, TJ, both top five pound-for-pound fighters in my book. So it seems unlikely, but I want to know your views on this. There was a time I thought that was possible, and I know Mark Henry believed that was possible for a time as well. I do not believe that to be the case any longer, Uh, which isn't to say I don't think he can beat Max. I think that's a very, very intriguing fight, but there was a moment at bantamweight where it was a little bit thin, and the guys who are currently at the top of it—I think Dominic Cruz was gone for a time—and the guys at the top of it, you know, this was like the days of Henan Burrow or something. You know, you just didn't get the sense that Frankie was overmatched. I—I don't—I I have a hard time accepting that he can just go in there and like run over TJ Dillashaw. I don't. Yeah, I'm not saying it's not possible, but point being is there was a moment there where you could you could see wow he could drop to 145 and do okay and and he could even go to 135 and maybe be competitive there at sort of wide open it's not wide open anymore the talent that is um you know more naturally suited for that division has asserted itself it has developed the the, the divisions have matured in a very clear way and i think that's going to make it hard for anybody to come down and just sort of take over now, he's taken a lot of damage in his last few fights. I mean, people forget he like he he won the Jeremy Stevens fight. Jeremy Stevens put a beating on that boy for a while um, and nearly stopped him. And, you know, credit to Frankie, who is <laughs> tough beyond description and a competitor in ways I can hardly articulate. But there's a cost to that. And I don't, you know, he's still very, very good and he's good enough to maybe beat Max, but giving up another 10 pounds to go up against guys who are naturally suited there, who have what I would argue is a more modern game. You know, you could argue like, oh, he's good everywhere. Frankie is good everywhere, but his game is not as modern as TJ's game, and I just feel like that door is probably closed at this point. Plus, you got to get through Max Holloway first, and good luck with that. Uh, other possible contenders. McGregor, unlikely. Well, he's two down. always oh, he has one to go, but I agree. That seems a little far-fetched. Shevchenko, natural 125er, who, in my opinion, beat Nunes or Nunes and also beat Holm, who f- who fought for the 145-pound belt. She's too small for Cyborg, I, I think. Uh, I don't see Shevchenko beating Cyborg, but if Cyborg retires, it could be a possibility. Um, any other names come to mind? Um, someone says RDA, but RDA 185? I mean, I'll admit, I didn't think he'd have this kind of success at 170, but another 15? Someone says Rockhold, right? Big at 185 could do it at 205 and even heavyweight. That's an interesting one as well. Uh someone says TJ and Holloway. Not saying it'll happen, but it's possible enough to, con- to be conceivable. More the more so than say McGregor beating Mayweather, right? Agreed. Someone says compared to TJ Max is huge. I agree. GSP at 155. That's another one. That's a decent one that's, you know, if he can get down there, that would be an interesting fight or interesting possibility. any update on the korean zombie that would be a question better for uh maybe robin black who i think has a good connection with him or somebody else uh but i don't know did you know that connor with two n's which is not how it's spelled for conor mcgregor was trending on twitter the night he fought mayweather how sad is it that so many people cannot spell the guy's name right to the point where it was trending on twitter i've realized that you've not really made it in this world until people uh, you're you're truly famous when no one knows how to spell your name correctly. That's what I realized. Because if you're just known to your friends and family, they're going to get your name right. When you're so popular that strangers who have a passing, like they may not have even seen the word Conor McGregor on paper. They've just spoken about it with their friends. So they don't actually know. That's how you know you're popular is when they just start adding letters to your name, like Luke with a double L or something. Or I've had people at Starbucks spell it L-O-O-K. Like, look. is uh who's got the venti pike with room is look here yeah looks here looks here guy i get that more than you would think so that's really what i'm aiming for in life if i could just be candid is i want to become look thomas i don't (laughs) i'll be rich enough and famous enough i'll have hit the lottery and something god only knows And people will just mispronounce all of the things that they shouldn't mispronounce and they'll add letters where they don't need to that's when you know you have really become somebody famous uh deadlift tips here's my deadlift tip don't listen to me Luke. if i sent a video of my deadlift technique would you be willing to give me some tips and pointers also a while back you mentioned a judo book that's all about arm bars can you give me the name of the book and the author please ah got it downstairs you know what i'll make a note about that to bring that up next time i am very sorry about that let me get this don't forget judo book okay here's deadlift tip number one you don't need to listen to a jabroni like me number two i just like having a big mouth about it number two uh here's the good news when i was growing up and lifting weights we only had things like flex magazine that i would read on you know 29 palms california at the military marine corps base there 29 Palms, California is a place where they should shoot horror movies. It is, it is the worst place in in America. And I cannot believe people actually live in out, out in that town, but they do. And the base itself also is not great, except anything related to fitness is awesome on a Marine Corps base. Boy, I'll tell you what, they put money into the gym. I mean, that gym in 29 Palms had hammer strength before any nice gym, uh any global gym had one. Uh they 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 take care of the marines when it comes to that or with swimming pools and things like that. So uh, but all we had was just each other's terrible advice and then flex magazine or muscle and fitness to read we didn't have anything else now you have all kinds of different people i've said it before i'll say it again i, I mean i love strength sports i can't for me i never understand why strength sports aren't more mainstream but i get it you know people don't have the same meat-headed interests that i do but i love powerlifting i love weightlifting not merely to to and i'm i don't i don't i don't do olympic lifts maybe like power snatches or Muscle snatches or cleans, but I don't, you know, I don't like, I don't know how to properly snatch. So I'm not going to tell you that, but, uh, if you want to learn how to do things and weightlifting takes, I think a real coach, I think powerlifting is to some extent more, you're more able to, um, self self teach. I've given it before. Uh, Johnny Candido is a great YouTube channel you should absolutely follow. Um, Even Mark Bell's channel. I mean, I know um, Elgin Tensity doesn't like it, and I respect that, but there are some decent tips on there, especially when he gets like Brian Shaw, who has a bit of a unique deadlift setup, but he really goes through the explanation for it. Omar Yusuf is a good channel you should really check out. Um, What are some other really good ones that uh, I've been into? Uh, Oh, um, Juggernaut Training Systems. You got Max Ida and um, um, Chad Wesley Smith. They break down everything super scientifically. Dr. Mike Isratel of Renaissance Periodization, he's another tremendous, tremendous asset. All these guys will go into programming, they'll go into diet, they'll go into technical lifts, they'll go into um you know what's the difference between conjugate periodization and linear periodization and what is progressive overload like all the things you need forget the deadlift for just lifting generally you've got ben pollock out there who's got the unfuck your lift series i mean you've got a lot of different ways this can go and a tremendous amount of assets so yeah if you want to send me your deadlift video i'm happy to take a look at it for what it's worth but let me just fill everyone in if you want to learn how to do those kinds of things there has never been a better time, literally, in the history of strength. Short of having, you know, uh, Max Ida uh, next to you, uh, in the history of lifting, in the history of ever anyone grabbing a barbell, there has never been a time where it's better to get great information for free, uh, ready at your fingertips. This is like literally the golden age of lifting. So whether you want to do bodybuilding kind of lifting, whether you want to do powerlifting, whether you want to do weightlifting, functional training, you want to do kipping pull-ups at CrossFit, like whatever, there's this is the best time in the history of the human experience to go do that. Sort of consider what that means. Uh, okay, it is 2.15. Let us go to the Twitter machine. You can follow me on Twitter at LThomasNews, and you can tweet using the hashtag chatrapper. Uh, Is Miocic the worst at getting audiences hyped for a fight? At the press conference, Nganu provided multiple opportunities for him to build tension and go back and forth, but he neutralized every one of them with his no response working guy persona. Right, but I'm not, you can't be mad at a guy for who he is. If he feels like he doesn't want to do that, or he can't do that, or it's against his, you know, who he is as a person, I I mean, you just can't be mad at him for that. Now, he has, as I mentioned, he's got to understand if you're not going to do that thing and somebody else is. The company is naturally going to gravitate towards that guy. And I think you got to make some peace with that in your mind. So, you know, and maybe he has to some extent. I don't know. But uh, I'm not mad at a guy for not hyping if it's not what he's good at. and It's not what he wants to do. My only take would be, as I mentioned earlier, if you don't want to do that stuff for all those reasons, no problem. But you have to accept the costs of that as they reveal themselves. Uh, Okay. How much more inside news and rumors do you and other journalists know that us MMA fans don't? More than you could possibly imagine. I've gotten so many things where you can get one person to speak about it, but you can't get two. Or you can get two, but the second one is like mm, a little dodgy. Uh, A lot. And a lot, that's not necessarily news, like gossip about people's personal lives. There's a lot of that going around too. A lot. A, A ton. It may be why we don't have quite the same like Fans wonder sometimes why media doesn't view the fighters in the same way fans do. Well, there might be some reasons for that. In part because it's our job, but more than just that. My name is Beau, spelled B-E-A-U, which I presume is of French origin. Uh, And donks everywhere have trouble spelling and pronouncing my name. In fact, one server pronounced my name Bayou. Does this mean I made it in life? No, because your name is, it's a homophone, right? So you can spell it a number of different ways and they all sound the same. Uh, I believe that's a homophone. Uh, homoph- I could be wrong about that, but in any case, so you can spell it B-O and half the world is not literate. So you've, you've gone far in life. You've gone far, but not far enough because there, Well, I guess if they're spelling it by you, they have added letters to it. So, yes, you know what, sir? You are the world's greatest celebrity. I take that all back. Is Sunday Vitor Belfort's last fight? I have a feeling it's not. I have a feeling he's not going to end it in St. Louis. I guess we'll have to see. No guarantees, but I guess we'll have to see. Um... Will you vote for Oprah or The Rock in 2020 for the U.S. presidential race? I will off myself if that happens, if that is the choice that we have made. Fundamentally, this is a broken democracy at this point. I mean, not to get overly political about this. You guys know how I basically lean politically. But the notion that the left in America would suggest that Oprah is a, even a, 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 I mean, to complain about Trump, who's, (laughs) let me get this straight. The left has complained about trump because they have argued among a number of other things that he is fueled by television popularity and money and has no policy expertise no real ability i mean one of the big things on capitol hill for any leader particularly in an executive position like that you have to be able to vocally not merely whip up support in the various chambers of congress for support of a bill you have to be able to articulate the intricacies of it Uh, and make a public case for it. One of the problems with Trump is that he just can't do that. He can browbeat on Twitter, but he has a very, very hard time uh, with any real complex policy um, uh, arguments because he doesn't know them. And so that's one thing that has inhibited him, short of tax reform. He's just been unable to do that. Uh, And I think that was really what ultimately sunk all their efforts on Obamacare. Neither here nor there. Point being is you have made this argument about him that he is fueled by television and popularity that he is fueled by money, he has no real policy expertise and you're going to turn around and hypocritically and stupefyingly suggest somebody who has the exact same problems and you can say she's self-made versus inherited wealth. I do not care. She is a snake oil salesman who has who has promoted the causes of Dr. Oz and anti-vaxxers. She doesn't know anything about the individual mandate, about the implications of moving the uh, embassy to Jerusalem, about about uh, CHIP and S-CHIP healthcare for children. I mean, you name it, you, about any kind of policy issue related to uh, immigration reform. This is a, somebody who knows nothing about any of those things, which is what they spent the last year and a half accusing Donald Trump of and they're going to turn around and then promote somebody like her, it is, it is mind-blowing that they think the antidote to that is to have their version of that. You'll recall when Jesse, uh, Jesse Ventura and Arnold Schwarzenegger left their various governorships, under albeit different circumstances, the public in both of those states were sick of them. Whenever you have a celebrity candidate, it's always a bit of a wild card in terms of how the public will perceive them and what rules apply to them under normal electoral circumstances. But when Jesse Ventura left Minnesota and Arnold Schwarzenegger left California, not only were they politically crippled, they were widely reviled, I think is a fair way to put it. They were not viewed as people who were excellent stewards of the government, in part because they don't know what the F they're doing. And I love Arnold Schwarzenegger. Arnold Schwarzenegger might be my favorite person ever, but he was not a suitable governor for the state of California. In the end, those those various voting uh, groups got sick of them. Here, (laughs) rather than being sick of Trump for uh, riding a wave of celebrity, among other things, uh, into the office, they have doubled down on it. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I would never in a million years vote for Oprah Winfrey. Even if she said I wanted to pass a policy where Luke Thomas gets 50% of everyone's taxpayer dollars for uh, the rest of his natural life, I would be like, this is the dumbest person that has ever lived. She has no business, no business anywhere near the executive branch of the United States of America, period. End of story. Not now, not ever. All right. With that out of the way, What's next for Woodley? Uh, I'm going to guess Colby Covington because he keeps saying he's not going to fight him, which probably means he is. Who will play in this year's Super Bowl? I'm going to say, let me look at the NFL schedule here because I want to see what the games are this weekend. I'm going to say, here's my totally terrible predictions. Ready? Falcons-Eagles. Uh, I'm going to pick Matt Ryan over Case Keenum. So let's go, or Nick Foles, whatever. So I'm going to go Falcons, Jaguar, Steelers. Steelers. So it's going to be Falcons, Steelers. I'm going to go Steelers. And then you've got, um, let's see. Then you've got Titans, Patriots. Oh, wait, no, it's a different one. It's AFC and NFC. Hold on. Falcons, Eagles is NFC, Titans, Patriots, AFC. So I'm going to go, how about this? I'm going to go Saints. Ooh. No, can the Saints beat the Patriots? No, they can't. So I'm going to go... Patriots, yeah, I'm going to go, you know what, F it. Patriots, Falcons, that's where I'm going to go. Same one as last year. That's the way I'm going to go. There you go. Let's see here. All right, next question. DC and Vulcan are running under the radar for 220. Is this problematic, especially if Vulcan wins next week? Yes. Yes, it is. Uh, what are your thoughts on the Gabby Garcia Ryzen debacle? I was going to ask last week, but UFC 219 made me forget about it. I don't have much of a thought, to be honest. I don't really care. Uh, someone says your uh, your brain injury fund idea could create an incentive for fighters near the threshold to go out and take damage in order to become eligible for the fund. Not that it's a bad idea. But you need to take that into consideration. Yeah, there would have to be some procedures and protocols in place for, you know, you're eligible to this sum of money at this juncture and, um, you know, lays out so that you couldn't, you could minimize the extent to which they could game it in that sense, right? Um, But yes, I, I agree. There could be any kind of system you set up for charity essentially is susceptible for abuse. Let's see. Seems like Habib's opponents must focus harder on winning via stoppage than going the distance. They need to not only avoid subs and KOs, but also any and all rounds being scored 10-8 by any and all the judges. Is this the only triple threat in this way? Is he the only triple threat in this way? Sort of. Uh, Let me just say this. The best analysis on him that I've seen comes from BJJ Scout. He has a a video on him where he basically explains how he has the takedown, ground control, sub-threat ground and pound style mixed of like you take a Venn diagram of Maya, GSP and Askren he is the part where all three of those circles intersect i couldn't possibly explain it any better than that uh so go watch his video cuz it's it's the best thing going far and away bjj scout man what a, what a treat it is to have a guy like that uh making videos cuz i learn something every time i watch his videos i know any video i make is never going to be as good not that i'm out there competing in that sense but um but i just know he's the king and i like learning from a guy like that i think it's super interesting he's always covering topics in a way he's got an eye for detail that nobody else does um go look at his analysis the only thing i would add to what your question is is um I don't know, because if you end up in a position where you are becoming vulnerable on the ground, that's where he does his best work. So I know what you mean. The longer this goes, the more that the race becomes harder to catch up. So why not go for the kinds of techniques or employ a strategy that would minimize this going the distance? But that necessarily creates more risk for him to be able to uh, bring his game to bear. I think the biggest consideration is you have to stop all of the takedowns before they really get going. Once he does the first shot, which is to make contact, and then that it forces the second push back into the fence, you've gotta be able to break that, uh, his hand control, and you gotta be able to create distance from there, and you have to be able to do it fast. That's really, really the key for that. If you don't do that, then it's really kind of sunk for you. I don't think that, you know, oh, he's coming in, let me throw a flying knee. Well, now he's got you on the ground, and now you're just gonna be turned into hamburger. That's not. That's not a great policy either. Do you think Stipe meant he thinks the UFC is trying to aid Francis in training for their upcoming fight? Um, Maybe. You have to ask him. I know Darren Till is good, but I see why beating Cowboy is some monumental achievement. It's a good – I think he's trying to say I don't see why. It's a good win, but the hype off beating a blown-up lightweight is ridiculous. Well, yeah, I mean, that's – I think some other vetting of this candidate is in order, but he's got to get the fights for that to happen. Um, who will have the best year? Dar- <clears throat> Darren Till, Kelvin Gaslam, or Brian Ortega? I'm gonna say Darren Till. Are you enjoying Real Madrid's season? I am definitely not, man. I don't know what Zidane's tactics are. Uh, needs to go back to the 4 3 3. Marcelo has been god awful this season. Um, and if there is space between the winger and the back on the left side, like there has been, because you've got this attacking, you know. You got. You have. So I don't think the Teo and Marcelo combination, such that they make it, is a very good one. Um, And there's so much space on that open left. There's only so much that the maestros on the offense can do um, to protect them in terms of ball control of the midfield. And Zidane apparently doesn't want to make a lot of changes. I thought the big problem was. I mean, here's. There's two problems. One, the tactics are just bad. OK, they're not they're leaving so much space open on the left. And I also feel like the front three of PSG are going to carve Madrid up if I'm if I'm being candid. And I think the other problem that they have is I thought the issue was, well, when Hamas left, he was a good goal scorer and reliable substitute off the bench. You recall so many games last year were like they were 1-0 or 1-1 or 2-2. And they would bring in Morata and Hamas off the bench and, you know, that's the best bench in the world, basically. And they would come in and they would just have these miracle moments, or it would empower Marcelo to come up. Or Sergio Ramos had like all these headers at the very last minute, right? So they, would, they would had these incredible comebacks. But it occurs to me, like, why didn't they make a Galactico signing? And they're talking about signing Keppa. Who gives a shit about Keppa? I don't care. I'm Keeler Novice is a very, very good goalkeeper. They don't need Keppa. But the point being is, um, Ronaldo has been so important for that club, but he was a big reason why Mbappe went to PSG. It turns out, because he doesn't want anyone else there to be the guy while he's there, but his play is dropping off a cliff. And so my concern is, A, they're not going to sign like any of these Galactico signings while he's there, although you could say, well, they signed Hamas in 2014, but or 2015, whatever it was. But uh, 2014? Yeah, 2014 World Cup. But point being is, uh, his decline at the club, or his decline is going to cause decline at the club until they have no choice but to bench him or get rid of him, and then the club is going to rebound. So I don't think it's going to be just bad this season. I think we're going to have a few bad seasons here while this guy ages out. And then the club doesn't want to piss him off because he's been so important for them. But his decline is going to bring about years of, I think, bad seasons at Madrid, unfortunately. Uh, one more. For you, which holds more bearing in terms of popularity increase? Main event on a Fox card or co-main on a pay-per-view? Of course, it depends on the magnitude of the fight. But for me... It has to be the main event of a Fox card free and clearly gets more viewers than a regular pay-per-view. I think uh, you're right. It just really depends on the circumstance. Who's in the main event? If it's a Connor or Rhonda, that co-main could have significant um, uh, extra views as a consequence. And then by, by contrast, you know, you can have the main event on Fox, but if you're um, you know, wh- whoever's been low-rated, let's say Jim Miller, Nate Diaz, well, not low-rated, but you know, sort of mediocre to okay-rated, um, I don't know that it provides all that much of a benefit. However, if it's something incredible... Uh, and they decide to put, you know, I don't know, John Jones, if he comes back and put him on free TV, then it it really is just a function of how that space is used and what it's next to. Uh, I don't think that intrinsically they necessarily hold um, more value than the other one. Okay, I appreciate everyone tuning in. Thank you so much. Like this video. Subscribe to MMA Fighting below. I believe there is a beat tomorrow, so that should be interesting. Um, Yeah, and there's going to be a UFC St. Louis on sunday not saturday sunday and it's gonna be after the i believe i believe the saints vikings game uh or yes i think it's gonna happen yes saints vikings is that right i believe that's right yes that's correct uh so be on the lookout for all of that uh if you have a question email me luke at gmail.com i always appreciate it when you do i can't get to all of them but i try my best to answer as many of those as i can And uh, yeah, I just appreciate you guys watching next week. I hope to have a little bit better of a setup for you. So we'll see how that goes. No promises. And until next time, uh, stay frosty.